Thank you, Katie. Well, if we haven't met before, my name's Callum Lindsay. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is a joy to be with you on this Labor Day weekend. Um, We're continuing, as you might have gathered from Katie's prayers, we're continuing our theme um, on the love of God, taken from that incredible passage in Ephesians 3. Um, and just, so just to remind you from Ephesians 3, um, Paul says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And today, um, of those four dimensions, we're going to be looking at the high love of Christ, seeking together to grasp some more of what this high love might look like and how we might respond to it. I love um, what Brian said in his Thursday email. Um, if you didn't read it, that's okay. I'm going to tell you now. Um, but he said, think about this. No one ever dared to refer to a king as your wideness or your longness or your deepness, unless they wanted their heads chopped off anyway. But they, instead, we look up and say, your highness. It's the same for God. God's high love reaches down to us. God's love surpasses our knowledge, and it's beyond anything we could imagine. God's height is immense, for God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Because every time we come to God, uh, we are seeking to connect to our high king of heaven that we've just sung about. Who is above all and over all. And in fact, every time we come here, in fact, any time we worship, it's an encounter with the transcendent and living God who is high and lifted up. So worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. And so we respond to God's love through worship. And the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship, literally who and what we give worth to. Billy Graham famously said that, um, show me your checkbook, I know this is old school, but show me your checkbook and I'll tell you um, who you worship and what you worship. Because we're all worshiping. It's not just when we come in on Sundays, every moment in our workplaces, in our families, everywhere we go, we are worshipping. It just depends who or what we're worshipping. William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, summed up what worship should be. And I love this, this, this quote. He says, Worship is a submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, and the surrender of will to his purpose, and all this gathered up in adoration. The most important way to gain insight in how we should respond to God's high love in worship is to search the scriptures. So, I want us to look at a passage in the New Testament that highlights worship 
Hebrews chapter 12, and as a reminder, as we come to the book of Hebrews, it was written to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus and in the early church, and they were being persecuted, and some of them were wanting to turn back uh, their backs on faith. And it has lots of comparisons, and this passage is no different. Sometimes this passage is called the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. And it sort of contrasts Old Testament worship with the privilege that we have as followers of Jesus and how we worship God. And just as a heads up as well, it's quite a deep passage. It's got lots of biblical imagery and um, references, and we don't have time to unpack it all. If, if had we, it would probably be a whole sermon series. So I'm not going to go there, just for, for your sake. But it does offer a helpful framework as we look at God's high love and point to how we should worship God, our Father in heaven. So we're going to jump straight into Hebrews 12, starting at verse 18. You have not come, and this is him talking to the Christians, uh, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that it's burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not even bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The mountain of fear is a synthesis, almost a caricature of the experience of God's people in the desert and how they experience coming before God in worship. But for our purposes, what I think this passage helps remind us is that God is holy. And holy literally means set apart. Set apart physically, but also set apart by God's perfection and beauty and transcendence. This description refers to Moses going up the mountain and receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai and the cloud and the smoke. And it's fascinating after that, and as it mentions in Exodus 20, 19, that the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. They're so fearful, understandably maybe, of God's holiness. And this response prompts us that God, as we read and understand the Old Testament, is truly awe-inspiring and not to be approached casually or carelessly. And in many ways, these interactions with God in the desert uh, do sometimes can seem almost scary, but they also are incredible reminders as we think about God's high love and who he is. Is it that the holy, transcendent, living God actually deigned to come and speak to Moses and the people, which is pretty extraordinary. We have to remember that as intimidating as those encounters were, they were still an act of love and a communion by God, a holy God to his people. And that was a radical departure from where all the other tribes and other nations, the way their gods interacted with them, they would never do that. So these people of God are experiencing God in a powerful way. And there's dangers with passages like this that highlight these passages of the Old Testament that we can fall in to an old uh, first century uh, heresy called Marcionism. A heresy is basically getting wrong thinking about God, which is the belief that the God of the Old Testament is all bad, judgmental, and we don't want to look at that. And that the God of the New Testament is all lovely and is is no judgment and is beautiful and, and Jesus is just wonderful. And we set up these two contrasts, and all of us fall into this. I know I do when I'm reading this. I start to fall into this thing that we see the Old Testament as bad, New Testament good. 
However, if we forget the Old Testament, we lose so much of the awe and we, we actually lose so much of what happens in the New Testament. We lose our awe and reverence. Francis Chan just mentioned about this. He said, Many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? We learned in Proverbs series that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And it might be said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all acceptable worship. And the author of Hebrews, and by the way, if you haven't come across this, by the way, um, the book of Hebrews, none of the commentators can actually decide who wrote it. And so they just say the author or the writer. And so um, just as a little aside, it's not that I don't know, it's that nobody knows. So the author of Hebrews makes it clear that we do not come to God as on the mountain of Sinai. Instead, we have come to the mountain of joy. Picking up at verse 22. And, and he says, but you, meaning the Christians, these um, Jewish Christians who are trying to follow Jesus, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, just biblical imagery is so rich. And if you go back and just follow through all of the, the cross-references, if you've got one of those Bibles, it's so helpful. It's fascinating. It's literally will blow your mind of how much it fit, he fits in there. But just I'm going to look at a couple of things. So here goes. The picture that the writer is trying to make is that the followers of Jesus, we come to God like those on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was where the temple in Jerusalem was mounted. And so it represented God's presence with his people. And it's where the temple stood in Jerusalem. So it, but it's also referencing the new Jerusalem. As we hear in Revelation, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And where Jesus returns and who, all who follow, we will be his people and he will be his God. We, and so the author is helping us to understand that when we worship, when we come, when you come on Sundays here, we are, are not alone. Even if you were on, in a room by yourself, you would not be alone when you worshiped. Because we are joining in a heavenly worship experience that's been going on since creation with the angels, and it includes every person who has fo followed Jesus through all history and to go. And that is, I mean, talk about cosmic mind-bending stuff. That is pretty incredible. But it, the main thing is that we are not alone. When we join with God, we are not alone. And um, Daryl Johnson applies this to our own worship. And he says, worship does not begin with us. It doesn't end with us. So the question after our service of worship is not, what did I get out of this? The question after the service of worship is, did I enter in? Did I enter into the mystery? Did I enter into the worship that never ends? Did I enter into the change that's taking place in the heavenly worship? Did my heart cry worthy? When we worship, we still come to the same God that Moses met. However, the incredible thing about Christian worship, 
And what we're doing here today is that we don't come to Christ, to God on our own merit, but we come through Christ. As the author of Hebrews said, we now come through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the pure, sinless one who shed his blood and sacrificed himself for our sins, making us righteous. Paul in the book of Romans uh, makes this very clear. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So worship, I think what I'm trying to say, worship without an understanding of God's holiness and our sin will always be pale and shallow. And I know I'm sounding very dour Scottish Presbyterian, like talking about sin, but it's true. It's true. Jesus told the story of two people, and I think this helps us, who owed money to a moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay the moneylender. So the moneylender forgave the debts of both, and Jesus asked, now which of them will love him more? And of course, the answer was the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And that's why we always include a time of confession uh, in each service. It's not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but it's to remind us of who we are and then be comforted by Christ's assurance and know that we can enter into worship, not on, on our own merit, but on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In short, we don't come and worship to pay God with our presence. Oh God, you must be so happy I'm here. We come into his presence knowing that he has paid it all. So we celebrate that we have a God who came down to be with us, literally from on high, and lived and died for us. We need to remember that Jesus also ascended on high and sits at the right hand of our Father in heaven, along with the angels and all the saints that we get caught up into when we worship. Henry Scogel, who was a, a Scottish divine in the 17th century, that, a, a, a Scottish divine sounds, sounds strange, doesn't it? I mean, I should have thought every Scot was divine, but anyway, that's... that's Sorry, that was a total aside. That was not in my notes, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. Worship is not something which we religious people do to please God. But in worship, Christ himself comes to live in our hearts by the Spirit and draws us into the very life of God. God's love allows us access, but his high love draws us up into himself. An example, I think, would be um, when my two-year-old son, Philip, knocks on the door of the office, which he did numerous times when I was trying to prepare this sermon. And I don't just sort of welcome him in or just bend down to shake his hand and say, there, there, go away. No, I, I pick him up. I draw him up to be with me and tell him that I love him. And that's what God does to us. Let's continue with our Hebrews passage. God speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the whole earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. 
The words once more indicate the removing of what can, can be shaken, that is created things. So what cannot be shaken may remain. I'm struck by that phrase, do not refuse him who speaks. What this reminds me of is that God is continually speaking, but most of all that he has, he has spoken already through his word, the Bible. It's the most important handbook for worship. The most important handbook for worship is not a hymn book or a song book or a prayer book, as wonderful as they are, but God's word is the most important. We need to listen to God and not refuse him or turn away from scripture. It can be hard. I, I know sometimes reading scripture, I don't want to listen to what God has to say. Sometimes I don't even want to preach what he has to say. But I must Listen, I must not refuse him because he has spoken. Andrew Murray, the Christian writer, once said, the power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our apprehension of who it is with whom we speak. So when we pray, and for all intents and purposes, I think that worship and prayer are literally two sides of the same coin. They're communion and communicating with God. But we're speaking to God who, in using two theological terms, um, when we're understanding who he is, he's both transcendent and imminent. If we're thinking about our worship, these are two really important words. The transcendence sort of matches the holiness almost sort of so above and beyond his high love. But his imminence is, is what's in us, is the closeness. Because God is transcendent in that fact that he's far greater and more powerful than the universe he created, and yet he's intimate, closer than we dare believe, right here with us when we pray through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Only in Christian scriptures, and that's what this writer, the writer of the Hebrews is, is pointing out, it's only through, as, as, as followers of Jesus, do we see a God who is both perfectly transcendent and truly imminent. That Hebrews passage also talks about uh, the heavens and the earth being shaken. In the spiritual sense, he's just saying that, that some things need to be shaken. They need to be, it's not a bad thing. I, des I desperately need the things that are not of God in my life to be shaken away so that any false idols or thinking might be removed and only what is true, spirit-filled and of God might remain. We, we need to have those things shaken. Do you know what needs to be shaken in your life? Are you willing to let God shake you, shake your, your life and, wh and what's going on the, in order that the things that are truly of heaven might remain? Even in this week, it was a week of for kids, both kids, first week at school, uh, my wife working, having to travel for work, kids being ill, and just trying to write a sermon and do all the other work. And it, I just got so, my eyes just got taken off. I, I just, I started to make an idol of what my, just anything other than what I was supposed to be doing or remembering who God was. And I just, I realized that I, I just had an idol of trying to make this the best. I just needed, and I was, wasn't just entering into starting to write. And God just nudged me and said, no, I'm, I'm shaking you. And I literally, I was at a place where I, I, I just didn't know what to do. And God, I realized that God is shaking me and reminding me of what is so, what is true. We need to be shaken out of our apathy and idolatry. And this might feel like God is getting at us. 
But this is for our best. Earlier in chapter 12, the writer says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. We need to be shaken to remember that worship is not about us. It's about God and who he is. It's like that Daryl Johnson uh, quote. If we don't like worship on Sundays, um, it doesn't actually matter because it's not about what we get out of it. I had a great inter, uh, interaction um, with somebody who came to see Marva Dawn, who was a, uh, she was a musician and she was an author about worship. And someone came up to her and complained that they only liked two, one of the three hymns that she'd chosen for that service. And she, her swift repost was, um, oh, that's good. It wasn't about you anyway. And does that mean that we can't have preferences about the type of music and the form of worship? Of course, we all have our preferences. But they must be tempered by our deference, firstly to God, and then to our, our fellow members in Christ, that the, the community of faith. So when it comes to worship, we must have deference over preference. Last two verses of this Hebrews passage. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That consuming fire is like reminding of God's uh, passion and purity and holiness that we looked at earlier. But the right attitude as we come before God and worship is undoubtedly reverence and awe. So we're going to look at those two things. and We're going to look at wholehearted reverence and humble awe. Wholehearted reverence. Louis Giglio once said provocatively, if our worship isn't visible, comprehensive and extravagant, the gospel we heard must have been tiny, empty, and cheap. And that doesn't mean that we have to have our hands in the air in every worship song or fake our emotions or require a full orchestra to, to, to create worship, but it does call us to enter in with wholehearted exuberance. One of the key ways that we do that is, is through music, and we have incredible musicians that we're so thankful for. Because singing together is different to reading together. There's something deeply powerful about music. Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant movement, said, Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. And the songs that we sing in worship, when, when you come here, when we get, come together, are like stepping stones in order for us to express our devotion to God. It doesn't matter if a song is a hymn from the 17th century by Isaac Watts or a Maverick City song written last month. And I'm so glad that in our church we have both. We can use them to bring ourselves before God with wholehearted reverence. And then humble awe. When it comes to worshiping God acceptably with reverence and awe, I think that to do that effectively depends on the posture we take. And as I close, this, hopefully this story will help us think about that. In his book, The Vision and the Vow, Pete Gregg um, tells of how a distinguished art critic was studying an exquisite painting by the Italian Renaissance master, Filippo uh, no Lippi. He stood in London's National Gallery, gazing at the 15th century depiction of Mary holding the infant Jesus on her lap, with Saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling nearby. But the painting troubled him. There could be no doubt, doubting Lippi's skill, use of color and composition, but the proportions of the picture just seemed wrong. The hills in the background seemed exaggerated, like they were going to topple out of the frame at any minute. The two kneeling saints look awkward and uncomfortable. 
So the art critic Robert Cumming was not the first to disparage Lippi's painting for its poor perspective, but he may well be the last to do so, because at that moment he had a revelation. It suddenly occurred to him that the problem might be his. The painting had never intended to come anywhere near a gallery. Lippi's painting had been commissioned to hang in a place of prayer. The dignified critic dropped to his knees in the public gallery before the painting. He suddenly saw what generations of art critics had missed. From his new vantage point, Robert Cumming found himself gazing up at a perfectly proportioned piece. The hills had moved naturally into the background, while the saints seemed settled, their awkwardness like the painting itself having turned to grace. Now Mary looked directly at him, intently and kindly, as he knelt there at her feet between the saints, Dominic and Jerome. It was not the perspective of the painting that had been wrong all these years. It was the perspective of the people looking at it. Robert Cumming on bended knee found a beauty that Robert Cumming, proud art critic, could not. The painting only came alive to those on their knees in prayer and adoration. Worship only makes sense when our posture is one of humility and expectation. There's so much we could remind ourselves about worship. We've hardly touched sort of looking into the Psalms and music and how it's developed and the way we structure our services, but well, that will have to wait for another day. I hope that through this Hebrews passage that you've realized the privilege we have of worshiping a living God who's made a way for us through Jesus. We see Jesus high on the cross. We're so used to God's love being in heaven but at the foot of the cross, we all look up to him. We see that God's high love is what brought Jesus down to earth to be with us, taking the very nature of God, being the very nature of a servant, being in a found appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross is what the height of God's love really looks like. And so our most acceptable and complete form of worship is when we remember what Christ has done for us and enter into a sacrament, a visible symbol of his divine love, his body broken and his blood shed. And we do that when we come to this table. We remember God's high love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we might have a posture of humility, reverence and awe as we come to you, celebrating your high love. We thank you for this table, which perfectly reminds us of how great your love truly is. Amen.